Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Beach? I'm very well on this lovely morning. And we are joined here by... Farm Charco. Hello, everyone. (laughs) How are you, (laughs) Farm? Good morning. Good. Good to have you here. Thanks. Yeah. Nerida's panelling for us to do as well. Thank you, Nerida. Kent's out in the green room. Tim's wrapped up his vital bits. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded wonderful. That's, what a and, pun. Don't, and don't they look lovely? Coming in hot on a Sunday morning, Bron Burton, ladies and gentlemen. There's a little ribbon wrapped around them and nice packaging and gift card. <laughs> you might have to take over from here. That's right up there when I said we had to go and have a slash. Do you remember that time? That was pretty good. Uh, I do. Anyway, let's yeah, move on. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. He's wrapped up his soulful bits as well. And uh, you can catch Tim next um, Saturday morning at six o'clock. We're going to just move on from there. We're going to, um, I've got some news to kick off with shortly, but uh, Fum, you're going to be bringing us your regular segment on plastic literacy. Indeed. Yes. Any clues? What are you going to talk about this time? <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, you requested a bit of a discussion about the ocean cleanup project. Yeah, this came up last week. So we started some discussion, um, mentioned on air that. Um, that the first deployment, there was a trial um, a couple of months ago. There were some problems with it. This is the giant ocean cleanup project in the Pacific, um, spearheaded by Boyan Slat, um, who's been working on this for I think about eight years now. And there were some issues with it. Then they launched it. It was looking quite good, but obviously some problems are emerging with with um, animals being caught along with the plastic and um, thought maybe we should have a chat about that. Yeah, it's um, – now, don't get me wrong. I love the whole boy and slat, you know, ocean cleanup idea. I think it's really wonderful that a young man can, you know, bring his vision to life. But there is just so much about it that's kind of not really hitting the mark. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think that um, – people really love about it is because it seems to be, you know, the solution. And that is just not the reality. Yeah. Let's talk about this more when we get into plastic literacy, because this is this is a whole point of conversation that is kicking off now. And uh, there's so much that we're going to talk about that. I can see from Dr. Beach's furrowed brow that you have some opinions on this as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> reading a lot. Let, 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 let's wait till four. Maybe you're just waking let, up. Let, let's, let's wait till we have the discussion in, in about five minutes. Yep, all right. And we're also going to um, talk about nano and microplastics in the human body. Yes, the Plastic Health Summit, the first one ever held, uh, was held in the Netherlands last week on the 3rd of October. So uh, there is some pretty exciting stuff coming out of that as well. Excellent. Uh, then uh, we've, I've got, as I mentioned, I've got some news to, to bring you up to speed with, a couple of plugs. Uh, and then Dr. Beach, we can oh. talk about. A bit on sharks. Yeah. A couple of things on sharks. Um, oldest shark fossils just been found. Uh, pretty fun. I mean, I, these papers, it's, looking at shark fossils, it's, it's like 
I don't know how to interpret it. I've got to go with all the colours that are there, but it's nicely helped. You know, it helps me in this, this paper. Anyway, I'll talk about that. And also how shark movements, migrations, the way they swim around the ocean, directions they take, paths they take, how they overlap a lot with shipping fleets, uh, fishing fleets. And, um, yeah, new data on that. And a paper which came out actually about six weeks ago now. I've been wanting to talk about it for a while, but... Let's pull that apart this morning. Cool. Uh, then Jeff Maynard's coming in to bring us sound waves meets blow waves. And all that he's told me, um, this was via a text, was get ready to rug up because the coolest guy in 70s television is about to hit Marinara. Who, who could? Let, let's think. Who is that? I'm wondering if it's the Fonz. I'm wondering if we're about to jump the shark. Oh, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah? It'd be Henry. There it is thinking maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Happy days. Answer to Triple R, Simon Winkler. <laughs> yes, I thought of that. Regular Triple R listeners will know what I mean by that. Winkles. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have some. We're he's the one forecasting. One my, he's, he's one of my favourite voices on Triple R. Oh, me too. Besides Tim Thorpe and Brom Burton, of course. <laughs> Let's just have the weather, shall we, Dr. Beach? Uh, yes, it's 22. Thank you for it, your kindness. It's going to be 22 degrees today. Um, 15 kilometre an hour wind, partly. Patchy morning fog in the outer eastern suburbs, mostly sunny morning, then cloud increasing during the afternoon with a chance of a shower at night. Winds east, um, easterly 15 to 20 k's an hour, turning north, northeast 25 to 35 during the morning. Um, yeah, so perhaps a tiny sprinkle tonight. Tomorrow's going to be 23 with a shower or two. Tuesday, 19. Partly cloudy Wednesday, 18. And then Thursday, back down to 15. I'm loving these oscillations. These temperature fluctuations, we're not getting, you know, hammered by the heat yet, which FOM was just, we were just talking about this before we came on here, and FOM's a bit scared of the summer coming. I hadn't heard that we're in for a, a big hot summer. That's yeah, I've been just yeah. trying to ignore it. But it's not really looking good. I think we got, we got off really well last summer, I think. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I hope it doesn't happen. But it, we, we have a bit of a reprieve. Yeah, 15 degrees on Thursday, 17 on Friday. Next Saturday is going to be 16 degrees. So staying cool for a while. Tides, if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening there. At Point Lonsdale, it was low tide just after six this morning. It's going to be a high tide at about quarter to one of one and a half metres. And on the water, swell net's telling us small swells, fresh easterly winds are favouring the open beaches east of Melbourne. There you go. There you so go. If you want to catch a wave, go to the east of Melbourne. Thanks, Dr Beach. That's a complete pleasure. <laughs> a couple of quick things to mention, both involving significant events around vessels. One is the uh, it's the 10th anniversary of the sinking of the HMAS Canberra in Melbourne as a dive site. You know something about this, Fum? Oh, I just saw something come past. I think uh, Red Boats had a, a bit of a celebration there, a, uh, a, celebra- a celebratory dive, and uh, that went really well. It's a, a wonderful, beautiful wreck to dive, actually. If you're lucky enough to have the good visibility uh, of the day, it's, it's really wonderful. Do you know where it is? Uh, it is just off, I think it's just off Point Lonsdale. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's marked with buoys. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, about 30 metres, I think. Okay, so yeah, you need to obviously have a bit of diving experience under your yeah, belt you need, before you, you need go an advanced advanced uh, certificate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's significant, and uh, we might get someone in. Actually, I might even ask Rex about the um, about the HMAS Canberra. Uh, can come and give us a little little historical look back to what it was, and and as you said, it's a great dive site, and ten years, a long time for it to become established as a good dive site. 
Um, the other vessel I'm talking about is the uh, Aurora Australis, and there's been a fair bit of press on this in the last week. A um, couple of things to mention. One was an article that appeared in the travel section of yesterday's age, not so much about going on, you know, on holidays on the Aurora Australis, but there's a really interesting um, uh, piece, uh, What Travel Has Taught Me by Sarah Laverick, and she is an Antarctic scientist who has recently written a book. We will be uh, lining Sarah up at some stage in the next few weeks to talk about her book called Through Ice and Fire. It sounds very Game of Thronish, but it's um, uh, it's about the history of the Aurora Australis in the 30 years that it's been going to and from um, Hobart and Antarctica, taking scientists down there to do all this research. It's um, just headed off for its final voyage. It's about to be replaced. It is, yes. Mm. So I uh, wanted to mention that one. Uh, there's also a really great article in The Guardian um, entitled Au revoir, Aurora Australis. It's a tiny melting pot of humanity isolated in the Southern Ocean. We'll put a link to that Guardian article on our Facebook page so you can go and have a read because it's um, it's it's really interesting little summary of, uh, of everything that's been, you know, the, the significance of the Aurora Australis, not just for science but for the arts as well. Indeed, it has been a, a stalwart of our um, Antarctic exploration, well, yeah. research. It's, it's one of those things that whenever you go down to Hobart, particularly during the winter months, it's, it's such a, a significant part of, of Hobart to go down there and see this you know, bright orange vessel yeah. sitting down at the docks. What I will mention now is uh, the track that we just heard from Parker Can't Keep Waiting is also part of an exhibition which... Uh, launched um, about a week ago, I believe. This is for our Launceston subscribers and for our Tasmanian subscribers. Maybe if you're going down to Tasmania for um, for a weekend, you can check this out as well. So this is called You, Me and That Other Thing, or Other Things, You, Me and That Other Things. It's an exhibition that's taking place at Sawtooth ARI uh, in Launceston. So go check that one out. Okay. What's ARI? I will work that out. Some some kind of TLA. <laughs> I'm t- yeah, I'm just um, I'm reading off a press release. It's actually a somewhat difficult press release because it's got an awful lot of text in it. So I will work that one out. Okay. I'll let you know, Doctor Beach. I do, get back to me. I'm, I'm you know. You're here for there. another forty-five minutes or so. <laughs> Fom. Hi. <laughs> Let's let's get back on track here. Plastic literacy, if people are just tuning in, um, this is a monthly segment that you do about plastics in the oceans and the problems that uh, we as a planet and are facing, but of course all the individual animals and plants that live there every single minute of every single day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so we've been talking about the Ocean Cleanup Project, um, which is a... Uh, in theory, really fantastic idea. Um, so Boyan Slat had, uh, who is who was 18 at the time when he conceived of this idea. He's a, a Dutch guy who was studying at the um, university, the Technical University of Delft in the Netherlands, and um, he thought about wanting to clean up the plastic that has already reached the ocean. Right. So there's a, a few gyres or massive, massive places in the ocean where there's kind of like really big whirlpools where all of the debris um, kind of collects through winds and currents and things like that. And the one that is closest is uh, to the land is between Hawaii and California, which is called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch these days because it also collects all the ocean plastics. So in 2013, he launched uh, Ocean Cleanup, his organization. And he wanted to make this 
built this device that basically consists of two really long floating booms um, to collect all of this plastic and then send some ships and, and collect it all up and take it to land for, um, yeah, I guess, recycling and landfill and things like that just to get it out of the ocean. Uh, absolutely fantastic idea. Execution, meh, not so great. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, what's really good for him and his team is that people really got on board with this idea. So he basically got a lot of funding straight away. And we're talking, when I say a lot of funding, I'm talking about $40 million. Mm. For, 40. 40, four zero, yes, uh, for this one idea. And a lot of that is, is, is money from donors. So people who, um, you know, really believe in the foundation. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's it is kind of it's kind of a band-aid solution so you know one of those things that we really need to look at is you know 350 tons of plastic have been produced in 2017 alone and the plastics uh, industry is set to grow to quadruple over the next 10 years in their production right so we're seeing an exponential um J curve basically when we look at plastic pr- production over since the 1950s, um, and if we still about to lose 10% of all of that into the ocean, which is kind of like you know the number, um, then that pro- problem is going to get much much worse than it is now already, right? And I question if cleaning up the way that they are doing it now is actually the way to go. I mean, obviously we need to put a lot more. Uh, resources into education and prevention, right? So that would be the first thing to go to. But also cleaning it up out of the oceans, I think it can be done a lot smarter. So what would you do? What would be your alternative? Well, in in their own report, they estimated that in the Pacific garbage patch where they're cleaning up, it's actually only 0.6% of ocean plastics in the world that gathers there, right? So that's less than half a percent. Um, yeah, no, even less than that. And um, most of the plastic pollution comes from the land, right? I mean, there's ghost nets and things like that. So rather than putting booms in the Pacific garbage patch and having to get ships out there to uh, lift things out of the water, why don't we bring it closer to land, right? Because most of the biodiversity that is affected by plastics really lives on the reefs so catch it before it actually gets out to the ocean exactly exactly what about the what about the plastic that's already there so we've got stuff that's already out there yeah would you advocate for just leaving it there well not necessarily but because of the design of what we're talking about with ocean cleanup i question if they're actually being as effective as they can be right because um they are cleaning up, so they have two booms that are about 600 meters each, and they collect the floating stuff. But a lot of what is there is already microplastic, and mm. it's kind of, because of the gyres um, movement of the water, it kind of gets, you know, it goes down into the water column as well. And they don't clean up anything that's below three meters, right? So are you going to put this amazing resource of $40 million into something that after six years of testing and breaking and then testing again is still not working optimally? It's an interesting or are you going to put those resources into something 
that is way more effective. Or do you put additional resources in? So you keep this going and you keep working on the product and you work to improve it. But because in, in a global, at a global scale, $40 million is nothing. No, so, it's true. Yeah. So do we just allow him to continue to do that and work on that at the same time, call for further investment to, well, A, obviously stop using as much plastic as we do in the first place, but B, the stuff that's actually getting out to the oceans, catch it at source rather than letting it get thousands of kilometres out into the ocean. Yeah, exactly. So all of those things need to happen. And my issue with this, with Ocean Cleanup, is not with the organization itself, because I think the idea is great. They're planning on putting 60 booms in there, right, in total. So they're, they're really talking about massive, massive cleanups. Mm. But the media attention that it has gotten is a little bit out of proportion because there are a lot of other organizations that also clean up in the yes. garbage patch. Yes. They go there with ships and they are lifting stuff out of the water and they don't need six years to test if their methods are working. They're cleaning up now as well. Yeah, so is right. it you know is it necessary to do it like this? Is it necessary to do it in this place? So the, the media attention that it has gotten um, is, is a little bit out of proportion, I think. And what I take issue with the most is not the organization or the idea, but the fact that people are so easy to jump on board and fund a Band-Aid solution. Mm. You know what I mean? So a lot of people think like, oh, this is great. This guy's actually doing something. And last week I actually saw on, on Facebook somewhere somebody commenting and saying, oh, at least Boyan Slot is doing something about, you know, about this Greta Thunberg. She's just talking and, you know, stirring up crap. <laughs> And I'm, uh, and I'm like, oh, because the last you're a thing, man, because what this planet really? really, really needs right now is for us to start pitting I people who are doing great things against each other. I know, and using it as an, op- you know, opportunity to to deflect attention. Exactly, from, yep. exactly. And this is what is happening a little bit with ocean cleanup as well. People see this as a solution. They're like, great, this guy is cleaning up the ocean. That's exactly what we need. And so if I donate to that and support that, he's taking care of the problem. And so I don't have to change my own behavior. Yep, that's the other And look at too. how I'm using my plastic because someone's taking care of the problem now. To, me, to me, it's a little bit like carbon credits. <clears throat> so, for example, I mean, you can, yeah, you can jump on a plane, Virgin flight, Qantas flight, whatever. And, oh, hang on, you can assuage your own guilt by giving us some money, plant some trees happy days yeah so you don't so it doesn't have to affect your life that's right yeah so so that is that is kind of the thinking that's behind this and and with the media pushing it so hard because they want to see a solution everybody wants to see a solution Mm. but the solution is not just cleaning up you know it is everything it is changing legislation it is holding industry accountable it is changing your own behavior at home with the plastic that you use and the plastic you refuse and all of those things need to happen because otherwise Boyan is going to be cleaning up for a very long time (laughs) and 60 of those booms in there are not going to make an ounce of difference if we keep going the way we are going absolutely yeah totally correct um, conscious of the time and we're going to leave that one right now. We're going to absolutely pick this one up next time you're in FOM. And I'm actually thinking yeah, where, where this might go. This, there are so many directions this might go. I think yeah, we've been talking about this th- for literally years. There are already some solutions that are that are happening now that do similar things in different places like look up Mr. Trash Wheel in, okay. in Baltimore, which is a, a, a really awesome cleanup device as well. 
Um, it's got really cute googly eyes as well, which you know only adds to the cuteness of it. Uh, very smart. Very smart to do hey, that. It'll get the kids in, whatever it takes. Just before we leave this topic, I'd mm-hmm. like to. Can we just have like one or two more minutes on this? Because it's only going to cut into my segment, and then I don't mind. It's up to Thom because the nanoplastic <laughs> stuff might have to wait till oh, next no, time. Oh, no, that's no, all good. But, but but when you're cleaning up in the in the gyre. Mm-hmm. So what animals are gathered at the same time? Yeah, the, so one of the... Various, the well, w- not, not just the plankton, but bigger things, which are yeah. sort of, you know, hanging around. So one of the um, biggest criticisms of scientists who have actually... So there have actually been two scientists of the University of Washington in Seattle who have taken the original plan. It's like a document uh, of like 528 pages that Ocean Cleanup made, you know, with all of their calculations and everything in it, and they picked it apart. Because, you know, they're scientists and and that is how we keep each other accountable to do really, really good work. And they picked it apart and they said that pretty much immediately that the environmental impact assessment was lacking massively. So there's no mention of the, and this is 2014, so they've they've done a lot of work to to adapt that since then. But there was a lot of... um, well, I guess there's two things. First of all, they didn't really mention any of the larger predatorial commercial fishing species like tuna and mahi-mahi that could be affected by ocean cleanup. Um, but what was really interesting was that they didn't really think about the Newston ecosystem that lives there. So Newston is an ecosystem of uh, animals and plants and algae and things like that that live up on, on the water surface and just underneath. So they kind of depend on on the surface of the water. Like plankton lives in the water column, Newston lives on top of the water and just underneath. And so there was not really any um, research done into the possible effect of that. So we're talking about blue bottles, by the wind sailors, uh, Glaucus atlanticus, which is a uh, nudibranch that goes upside down and eats the blue bottles. And all kinds of other creatures, uh, and that, and and in the environmental impact assessment, they even they even mention species that don't even occur there, mm. right? So that's basically like saying, oh, we're going to build a new shopping center in Werribee. Uh, there will be no effect whatsoever on giraffes. We can say that, <laughs> you know, the giraffes will be safe. No giraffe will be killed in this process. So, uh, so they kind of missed the mark there a little bit. But yeah. they have been working with scientists to, to rectify that. But the new ecosystem is something that can be scooped up really easily with all of that plastic um, yeah, so what the environmental impact on that is um, needs to be needs to be seen. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we could have a whole show on this. Maybe we need to allocate a full hour and do a whole show on this. Yes, we're getting nods around the table. We'll make sure that happens. Thanks, Tom. No worries. Amazing. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en tres triple R. Nine. 29 coming up to 9.30 and yes you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. A couple of things to mention that are coming up this week. Uh, Cade was in last week talking about uh, Our Marine Life Rocks which is an event that the Victoria National Parks Association are hosting this coming Wednesday 16th of October from 6 till 8.30 so good thing to get to after work. Very convenient location if you're anywhere near the city or can get to the city. It's at um, 60 Leicester Street or 60L, the green building in meeting room 1 and 2 on the ground floor and uh, three amazing speakers, uh, one of whom was our guest last week, Zoe Britton um, if you missed the show. She's a researcher at Deakin University and she's currently examining Indigenous use of seaweeds in Australia. 
and, uh, and and looking to uh, to document that as part of her PhD. So how seaweed played a role in the life of coastal Indigenous Australians. So she's only just kicking off, but amazing work that she's doing. So she'll be speaking on that. Um, Di Bray, Senior Collections Manager at Museums Victoria uh, and half of the duo that provide the awesome web resource Fishers of Australia and the Fish Bible, Fishers of Australia's Southern Coast. So Di will be talking about some of her knowledge uh, on what she does in um, those two wonderful publications. And she is amazing. She's a great speaker, isn't Unbelievable. she? Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, she's great. You guys, come along. It's, it's going to be awesome. Uh, Nicole Mertens is the third speaker, and uh, she is described as reef watch, heartbeat, and lover of the Great Southern Reef. So uh, talking about why she wasn't in Queensland studying on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, why she loves the Southern Seas so much. So all three of those amazing women have been on our program multiple times. Here is an opportunity to see them present together uh, and uh, it's going to be a wonderful night. So uh, we have already put a link to that on our Facebook page. I'll double-check that. I'm pretty sure we have, but, um, yes, we will uh, definitely do that if we haven't done that already. So, again, what's the gig? It is called – it's the VNPA are hosting it. Uh, it's called Our Marine Life Rocks. Just cool. presentation night runs from 6 till about 8.30. I believe there's nibbles usually. Yes, Fascinating, fascinating presentation. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Nibbles oh, they're and drinks. really good nibbles too. They are good yeah, nibbles. I saw that film about seven times. I reckon in the seventies, it was playing at the forum, and we figured out my mates now. We're like you know, high school that we could sneak in at half time. It was terrible. I feel so guilty about it. Like you know, depriving the forum of those funds. But we would get in. There'd be intermission in those days, and there'd be like something you know. On beforehand and then at half time you just go. Oh, in. you sneak in. Intermission. That's yeah. how it works. I know. Pretty ah. bad. But sharks, yes, we are. I'd, I'd like to talk a couple of things about sharks. Shark, we've talked about sharks a lot on this program. Sharks are terrible, but, you know, exploitation of sharks. About a third of shark species are now considered um, under serious threat. We need data. These are the days of big data trying to track where the sharks are in the ocean and also where the, the hunters of sharks are, that is, the fishing vessels, us. Yep. There's a thing that I've also talked about in this program, which is called the automatic identification system, which is a, or the automated identification system, or AIS, which we now have for, for ships on the high seas all over the place. Um, all fishing vessels as well as other commercial vessels, things, anything, out there is supposed to have this AIS where it goes up to satellite data and they can be tracked. Not all fishing vessels have this, but a large number of them do. So we now have an enormous amount of data, big data, one of the you know, many examples of the big data we have these days, showing where these fishing vessels are. A study has appeared in Nature, this happened about six weeks ago, from many, many different authors taking lots of work from all around the world, including authors from here in Victoria, Deakin University, um, w, University of WA, England, America, all around the globe, where they have tagged sharks, um, many different species of sharks, um, I think 1,600 or so sharks, um, where they've been tracked, where they go around the ocean. So these, the tracking data for the, for the sharks has now been married with the AIS data of the shipping. And it was thought in the past that sharks have a bit of, you know, a bit of refuge. Not, a lot of the long-line commercial fishers are out there trying to get tuna and other things, not particularly sharks. So they were wondering if there is any overlap between this. And it turns out that there are very few refuges, refuges if 
any at all for sharks on the open ocean because about a quarter of all shark tracks, so where they habituate, intersect with longline fishes. Mm. So this is underscoring for us that we have, um, yeah, there's nowhere for the sharks to hide really. So the ships are acting as giant refuges for them or floating moving refuges. Is that the theory? No, 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 oh, no, no. I, no. I've, I've missed I, the I, point. I, I'm completely. This is an example of my brain just not working this morning. I guess I'm not getting the message across. So we have we know where the ships are going. Yep. And they are intersecting with where the sharks are. So you've got yeah. fishing vessels out there. Sharks are where sharks habituate. They are in the same place as the fishing vessels at least a quarter of the time. So even though their shipping vessels, fishing vessels are not going for sharks in particular, a lot of the time. They are still there with the sharks, so right. they are taking sharks, either as oh, bycatch okay. or um, particularly getting the sharks. So okay. long-line fishing vessels will often take sharks as bycatch, and this is underscoring for us that we have no safe havens, I guess, for sharks. No. And that we have to um, – and the ones that are particularly in danger, like blue sharks, for example, carcaridin, carcarius, great white sharks as well. That's been hit as well as the short fin mako shark. So this is a paper which – Appeared in Nature um, in middle of September, and there's a nice little article on it by Julia Baum as well as the perspectives. It's good to get it out there, have this information out there. The question then is, well, that, that's right. Yeah, the, now the the bottom line is how is this how these data now used for management? Yep. And um, restricting fishing vessels, if we can do that, that's a very hard thing to do. Um, but also for yeah for management of sharks. Mm. Further in shark news, just a little bit more shark news. There's some excitement around the um, the paleontological world for sharks because now the um, the emergence of sharks has been pushed back to oh, at least 10 million years. So there's a um, paper which has just appeared in um, the proceedings of the Royal Society, and this is showing that the first shark fossil, well the oldest shark fossil. So sharks are elasmobranchs like rays. They have cartilage instead of bones. So you very rarely get um, good fossil specimens because mm, they don't preserve because they don't preserve very well. Yeah, you don't have the bones. Uh, turns out now we have um, so a guy called Christian Klug at the University of Zurich in Switzerland and his colleagues, um, with collaborators in Morocco and the Atlas Mountains, have found a um, a specimen, a really well preserved, almost intact specimen of a very very ancient shark, which goes back to. 383 million years and this thing i can show you a picture of it brom it doesn't look like much it's an eel-like thing it's about a meter long just under a meter long and it's very much like um some of the present day sharks such as frilled sharks um but the the really interesting thing with this is that they have wonderful preservation of it and they can even though it is cartilage there is still preserved cartilage in there and there's even evidence of muscle so they've been able to take these rock samples and do a lot of ct scanning on it so lots of x-rays through the rock and then assemble all these together you know ct scans we all know what they're about and produce these wonderful images which you know me looking at this paper as i mentioned before it's a little bit i'll show you brom but it just looks yeah. like a big lump of rock and then <laughs> and then they've, and then they've got all these sort of these colored bits sort of to help you interpret it's where it is sea oh, dragon. Okay. yeah it looks like a little bit like a weedy sea dragon but it, it's not it's an eel-like thing and um the teeth are extremely well preserved in it and from that they've been able to show what the you know what their closest relatives are yes so narrative. What, is, what is it about the um environment that they found it in that managed to preserve it so well that's so weird so out of like i can't get that out of the paper yeah right oh it doesn't say where it was found no 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 yeah in morocco but they don't say what it is about those rocks in the atlas sandy area (laughs) which has enabled this preservation to be better than any of the other um 
specimens that we have so far. That's, yeah, that's really weird. Do we know much about where you might normally find a shark fossil? Would it be in a volcanic region or...? I don't know the answer to that, Brian. Yeah. I think we've just opened a whole new can of... A whole new can something, of worms. Something, <laughs> something, <laughs> to get, something to get Kate out of K. Hold on, Sunday afternoon. That's, That's it. it for sharks. But one other thing I want to mention quickly is that The Economist reported um, very recently that now researchers have figured out how to listen to beaches and how to identify sand from particular beaches by the sound they make. Uh, when you, say, take a lump of sand or take a, a sample of sand from a particular beach and then you add mild acid to it and you listen to the sounds as it pops and squeaks and you get all sorts of things emitted from it and they're getting a signature for the sand from particular beaches. The reason this is important is that sand is a highly prized commodity around the world. We have sand mafia in places like India. Um, sand is, of course, important in construction. Um, there have been many cases of like beaches disappearing in the Caribbean overnight, for example, from people who want to use that sand for, yeah. for building. Mm. Sand in Australia has gone over to Saudi Arabia to be used in construction there. So sand is a highly prized commodity, and there is theft of sand. And we need to be able to determine which sand comes from where, whether it's um, been approved to be shipped to places or not. Um, so now we need some kind of detection for that. And these researchers have been able to um, use this technique to be able to tell what the sand is. A very easy, quick technique in the past that was looking laborious, you know, examination under a microscope to analyse particle size and so on. Huh. But so it's a potential tracking tool? It is. It is a tracking tool for wow. sand. Wow. Um, thank you, Dr. Beach. <laughs> Jeff Maynard, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Bron. I've come in for sound waves with the coolest guy from television from the late 70s, early 80s, I have to confess, because the TV series ran into the early 80s when I checked it on Wikipedia this morning. We had a guess at the start of the show who it might be, but I believe we were wrong. Yeah, you guessed it might have been Fonz. No, I actually didn't think Fonz was cool. And um, it was he was sort of uh, an enforced false middle-class white American cool, you know, because he always wore his leather jacket. And he rode around. He actually rode around on a Triumph, and I know about those kind of things. And, uh, no, I actually never thought the Fonz was that cool. Not in a real deep-down-in-the-soul cool. I think you've triggered Nerida. There's something a, a little bit wrong about a guy in his 20s hanging out in a <laughs> toilet with teenagers. Yeah, there's, there's all that as well. Actually, I think the original series, he, he was only going to be a bit player in, in Happy Days and, come, and, and and everyone liked it so much that they kept bringing him back. And he'd sit around with whatever the family's name was, having dinner and saying thank you, Mrs D, or whatever her name was, past, past the <laughs> chocolate cake, you know, and now I'm going to go off and be cool. No, he wasn't cool. Anyway, the cool, the, the TV, show I'm talking about is Magnum P.I. Oh. And he wore, the, and you'll notice my shirt, yes. thank you, he wore <laughs> shirts. He lived in a Hawaii. He was an in private investigator, they all were. Uh, he lived on this big estate which was owned by a guy that you never saw, but occasionally, I think in four episodes, you heard his voice, and his voice was played by Orson Welles. And uh, so Magnum P.I. lived on that, and he drove around in a 308 GTS Ferrari. Uh, quattro valvovi, which means four valves. Um, not, not that you're interested in old Ferraris. <laughs> no, no, no. And he drove it, and of course it was red. Anyway, we're going to kick off this episode. He, he Magnum's going scuba diving. There's something very soothing, almost mystical about the world under the sea. I've always felt drawn to it. And even though TC and I had learned to identify all kinds of sea life over the years we've been diving together, each time had its own surprises. 
Magnum P.I. was played by Tom Selleck. Yes. Who had a big moustache, as you all did in that era. Uh, He was actually originally cast as Indiana Jones, but Magnum P.I. was so successful the producers wouldn't let him go to play Ah. Indiana Jones, so they gave it to someone called Harrison Ford, and uh, he did all right with it. Um, Anyway, in this episode, uh, Magnum P.I. is scuba diving, and he gets what everyone calls rapture of the deep, nitrogen narcosis. He starts to hallucinate and he sees a young boy, you know, 30 metres down, swimming without any gear. And the boy's beckoning to Magnum saying, follow me, follow me. And Magnum can't, you know, figure out what it is, follows him. Anyway, um, he can't talk about all that underwater, so he gets back on dry land and he's got his little entourage Magnum. He's got, um, you know, the sidekick, the uh, the ex-Viet, a Vietnam vet who flies the helicopter and and uh, and Higgins who I'll get to in a minute. Anyway, he sees the young boy and they're all saying, "Oh, you got rapture of the deep." And they all stand around. They discuss this. So. I'm telling you, he was there. Who was where? Nobody. The boy from Atlanta, 100 feet down, no scuba, no air, just smiling and waving at old Uncle Thomas. He wasn't waving. He was gesturing. He wasn't there. You merely experienced an episode of nitrogen narcosis, more commonly referred to as the rapture. Please don't talk to me about diving, Higgins. I've done it all my adult life. I know what the rapture is, but I also know what I saw. That's precisely what Lieutenant Crossley said when we pulled him from the Gulf of Montauban. When we removed his diving helmet, he immediately started babbling on about the beautiful women he'd seen living beneath the sea. I believe sirens was the term he used. I'm not talking about a mermaid. Uh, anyway, so he's having this, and he's got his little entourage, and he's got all the people you need in your entourage when you're, you're, you're a, um, a, a detective in those shows. You've got the gentleman of a colour who flies the helicopter. You've got the dopey sidekick. Now, the dopey sidekick's important for two reasons. Whenever you walk into a room and the plot calls you for to knock over a vase or something and be, be exposed, the hero can't do it because he wouldn't be that clumsy. So you have the dopey sidekick who walks into the room when you're trying to sneak into someone else's house. The dopey sidekick always has to knock over the vase. And the dopey sidekick also has to explain things for people watching at home on their TVs uh, who aren't that bright. So when, when the hero walks into the room and there's a body face down uh, with blood all over the floor on the, on, the, on the floor and there's a big knife in the back, the dopey sidekick says things like do you think he was murdered you know <laughs> and, and and so he's got his dopey sidekick but he's also got now that when i said the coolest guy in television i didn't mean magnum oh. i meant higgins higgins is sort of one of the entourage as well and higgins is the like any british person to an american uh, a british person's always educated you know speaks a certain way and that's higgins and he's a cool guy anyway magnum's trying to investigate what happened to this kid that he saw underwater and he's driving around Hawaii in his Ferrari, as you do when you investigate things, and uh, he gets swooped by an old World War II plane. And, and so when you want to put someone off a case, you get a really rare aeroplane and you swoop over the car, and that just makes... So I'm not going to investigate that case any longer. You know. so, so Higgins, Higgins, who lives in the same estate as Magnum, has got a wonderful library. So Magnum goes in there, and instead of looking through the books to try and find out what sort of aeroplane, he pulls all the books off the bookshelves and throws them all over the floor. That's yeah, yeah. So Higgins comes in and finds him. Oh my God! What have you done? Oh please, Higgins! Don't you think you're overreacting just a little bit? I mean, they're just books, just books. 
Proust, Somerset Maugham, Balzac, you can refer to them as just books. Oh, come on, Higgins. I'm afraid your blatant disregard for the world's finest literature leaves me no choice but to make this room off limits to you from this moment forward. Not till I find what I'm looking for. If you're going to tell me another wild-eyed story about children calling to you from underwater... Of course not. It's nothing like that. A World War II plane just tried to run me off the road. Now, Higgins, I'm not sure how or why, but somehow, see, I think the airplane incident is related to the boy underwater. Ooh. Yeah, it, it, it is in the most vagus way. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, now, all the plot developments are basically meant to to string together scenes where Magnum drives around in this Ferrari right. and, and he gets out and he's, he always he wears tight pants and he wears his Hawaiian shirts and he sort of walks in and finds something and then jumps in his Ferrari and someone chases him or he chases them and then he meets, you know, there's always the pretty girl, he's got to meet the pretty girl. You know, they do something, he jumps in his Ferrari, he drives around and there might be a sort of really soft fist fight at the end or something like that and then he jumps in his Ferrari and he drives off. Um, I forgot what I was. But anyway, he finds this. He finds out from the newspaper archives that this boy was um, uh, killed in a boating accident many years ago and uh, uh, because the boy got on the boat with uh, his grandfather and they were trying to kill his grandfather to get him his grandfather's land or something like that. It's all sort of thing. So it is actually an apparition. It's, 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 he's, he's, does see the boy. It's like a ghost thing. And he kind of spends the... Well, he not especially, he spends the sort of third act or the second act chasing the boy, diving down, trying to find the boy. I kept telling myself this was the last dive, the last chance to find Kaligi. I told myself that after this dive, I'd quit looking. That's what I told myself. But even though Kaligi stayed elusive, I couldn't surface. Even though I knew that as tired as I was, I was putting myself in real danger, I couldn't quit looking. And even though I knew that beyond 200 feet, my own chances of survival were getting slimmer and slimmer, I couldn't force myself to go up. Something or someone kept drawing me down. And as I kept going deeper and deeper, I told myself I had to take the chance to find Kali'i. He doesn't find him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But he does find the shipwreck. The boy leads him to the sh- the boy leads him to the shipwreck. He finds the shipwreck. Uh, he realises it was blown up, and he goes back and uh, he chases the bad guy who happens to own the old aeroplane. And I don't know, they, these Ferrari chases him or something, and doesn't catch the aeroplane. The guy takes off, and the guy crashes and dies. And and Magnum just sort of puts on a cool shirt and goes to the bar and drinks those long drinks you have with little funny bits of plastic stuck out the top. And that was Magnum, P.I. All very, all very satisfactory there. Yeah, it, it was. All wrapped up nicely, as Magnum always was. Well, it, 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 always, it always did, you know, and, and you had sort of sunsets and things like that. And it all comes back to the Ferrari. Well, it sort of does. It sort of does. That, that, was, that was his big thing, but it was an extremely popular show and um, everybody wanted a, a red Ferrari. Um, <laughs> I think... As you do, and be a detective, you know. I, I think I think there's some lessons about cultural appropriation in this <laughs> that we, we probably need to get on at some point in the future. It was because, the, uh, the, the great joy of 1970s, 1980s television. It was. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. That was great. Looking forward to next time already. Any clues? Uh, yes, it's cultural appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're actually. I think it's time to address some really hard issues. So we're talking Hawaii and we're talking cultural appropriation. Okay. To, and it's more surfing than diving. 
Right. So, but but yeah, look, it, it will probably be for most people a highly offensive episode. It's not that episode of the Brady Bunch where they go to Hawaii, is it? No, oh, <laughs> even that's too bad. No, you can't. You can't. No, you're a man of class, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thanks also to Form. Uh- Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.